Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we head to Iowa, where Donald Trump trounced the field as Republicans began the process of selecting who will be the party's presidential candidate in November. Is this proof positive that the former president is going to steamroll his way to the nomination despite his many legal problems and other issues? Did a viable challenger emerge tonight? We answer all those questions. We talk power as well, not the political kind, the real kind. The grid was under strain in Alberta this weekend with that deep freeze and some natural gas plants offline, wind and solar providing next to nil. Albertans were asked to conserve power, and they did. But what does this mean for the long-term stability of power in the province? What are some of the solutions? Maybe nuclear could be part of that. As an Alberta company today announced a partnership with Ontario Power Generation to look at the feasibility of building Alberta's first ever nuclear reactor. We get some analysis on that as well. The satellites are one of Canada's most successful and celebrated reggae bands. And after losing co-founder Jojo Bennett in 2021, they are back with their first new music in many, many years. Something to warm you up at this cold time of the season. Lead singer and co-founder Fergus Hamilton is with me to talk about the new single, touring, and much, much more. But first, ahead of the 75th Annual Emmy Awards tonight, the Academy released the 75 most impactful moments in TV history. We run down that list with a little bit of help, look at what's there, what could be missing, talk about its significance, and we add some Canadian content to it as well. What an interesting list this is. Uh, it is the 75th anniversary of the Emmys tonight, and uh, or over the weekend, but tonight they're broadcasting it tonight. Um, and they li- released a list of the 75 most impactful moments in television history. And I thought, what an interesting list. So they got together with a bunch of different people, tried to come up with this list of 75. I'm wondering what you would consider to be the most memorable moment in, or most impactful moment in TV history. Keep in mind, this is an American list. So there's no nothing Canadian on it, unsurprisingly, perhaps. It's mostly American stuff or, you know, stuff that we've all watched. Uh, but let me know what you would think. one 399 9898 is the text line, one 9898 The most impactful moment in TV history. Number one, maybe not a surprise. Have a listen. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footpads are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. I'm going to step off the lamb now. Yeah, no surprise there, right? I mean, anyone who was there to watch that, which I wasn't, still talks about that day and Neil Armstrong back in 1969. Uh, again, as they celebrate 75 years, a lot of the examples, no surprise, come from sort of what one might call the, the golden age of TV, right? When things were seen, what history was seen on TV for the very first time. But perhaps this is, the, I think this is the one that I remember the most, obviously, uh, 9-11. Oh my God, so both towers are now. 
Yeah, that I mean, I'll never forget that day. It's amazing, even today, even though it's TV doesn't unite the way it once does, people still gather to watch it when something really big happens. But perhaps uh, one of the most famous moments in television history when many gathered, in fact, I think nearly 50% of all TV sets in America were tuned to the same channel at the same time on this night in 1964 for Ed Sullivan and the Fab Four. Here are four of the nicest chances we've ever had on our stage. The Beatles, bring them on! Yeah, 60 years ago, February 9th, 60 years ago, February 9th, 73 million people tuned in to watch that. And given that it's Martin Luther King Day in the U.S. uh, and the Emmys are being held tonight, here at number six, Martin Luther King. I still have a dream. Yes. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream Mm -hmm. that one day... This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And there you have it. Some of the most impactful moments in television history, according to this new list released uh, in conjunction with the Emmy Awards being tonight. It was released on Friday, actually. Some other ones in there, you know, lots of big TV moments uh, from MASH's final episode, Who Shot J.R., uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, The Sopranos, uh, the final scene in Friends. There's a lot in there, but uh, to talk about all of this is Robert Thompson. He's founding director of the Blair Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Snowy there, I saw. Snowy, I was watching that football game in Buffalo today. It looked pretty snowy where you are. Yeah, actually, we didn't get much, but uh, Buffalo's oh, down the street uh, about two and a half hours from us. But right. if Buffalo well, goes to the then. Super Bowl, we always know how that ends. <laughs> I hope not. That was not, by the way, Scott Norwood missing that field goal was not on the uh, 75 uh, greatest moments or most no, impactful moments. But, uh, but that that uh, that list was really, I, 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 it was like traveling back in time watching that list because none of it was particularly, I don't think there was a lot of surprises on there, but it really was like getting into a time machine. It was, and I think that's the point of these lists. They're, uh, they start discussions, they start arguments, they get people to tell people about things that they weren't born for, and I think probably this list will uh, achieve that. It's a peculiar list, though, and, and the, uh, the Academy is not the first to make these uh, kind of lists. TV Guide used to do them every 10 years or so. Uh, Rolling Stone has done them. Lots and lots of other uh, people have done them. But this, they call it the most impactful moments. And I think it is a little odd that uh, the moon landing is number one and 9-11 is number two. The moon landing was a big deal. I was around then. I was nine years old when that happened, and we were all gathered around uh, uh, the TV set watching it. And as spectacular as that was, I mean, this is 
1969 computers are still the size of uh, uh, gymnasiums, and we managed to get all the way to the moon and uh, uh, back again. It was extraordinary in the fact that it was a TV show. Uh, We saw a live phone conversation from the president, Richard Nixon, to these people while they were on the moon. That was pretty fancy television. But to um, have 9-11 number two. I think 9-11 as a TV phenomenon, if we're talking impact, probably is completely far and above uh, anything else. So that that was a little uh, uh, interesting about this list. The other thing is that um, four shows got two different episodes. Lucy got two episodes, one at uh, yep. 17 and one at 30. MASH got two. Ed Sullivan got two. All in the Family got two. And Roots got two. Now, certainly all five of those shows were really, really, really important to American uh, television and were certainly uh, impactful. But they, by getting two episodes there, we missed some shows. Um, I think probably for entertainment TV down here, All in the Family is the single most important uh, show in terms of how it influenced and changed TV entertainment. Not news, but entertainment. But I think second was a show called Hill Street Blues, which debuted in January yeah. of 1981. I don't think that's on this list at all. It isn't. Is no, the, in fact, uh, none the of the wire, yeah. if I'm uh, uh, looking correctly, uh, which were I think pretty important and pretty impactful as well. Yeah, I missed Roots too because I was just a little bit too young. I remember what a phenomenon it was, but it is a reminder when looking back at it um, that that shows such as Roots. I don't think have necessarily aged in the popular imagination. I think everyone remembers what a phenomenon it was at the time, but it's not exactly a show that I hear many people talking about in 2024. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it didn't rerun a whole lot. They did do a second uh, a sequel to it, and which did very well. When that came out in the late 1970s, they decided to do all 12 hours, eight days in a row. So it wasn't every Monday right. or it wasn't every Sunday. It was eight straight days uh, in a row, and they burned off all 12 hours. And at the time. It, I think those eight episodes, uh, I think uh, all eight were in the top 15 highest rated uh, TV episodes of all time um, at, at when, it, when they, they came out. So it was really huge, and it was very, very important. It raised lots of uh, consciousness, uh, an enormous cast of people from Maya Angelou, uh, the poet, to O.J. Simpson, the uh, football player, and lots and lots of other uh, actors in between. That was important, and actually having two episodes of that on the list uh, is, is not, uh, to me, uh, too much of a stretch. But it is interesting when I play that um, when I play Roots in my TV history class. By the way, uh, an awful lot of these shows that I play in my TV history class uh, are on this list. When I play Roots, most of my students who are about uh, 20, 21 years old, uh, most of them have never seen it before. Uh, however, right. they are very taken with it when they do. Those guys, the best. We all are so excited about this new concept in TV. We'll be doing for TV what FM did for radio. And let's get into it right now at MTV.
We're looking at the 75 most impactful moments in TV history as released by the Emmys and worked on by a bunch of different folks. MTV's debut at number nine, that was in August of 1981. And about, I don't know, what, 15, 16 months before that, Who Shot JR? That was what that song was. But someone actually texted in. That's on the list, by the way. And someone texted in as that that as being one of the most impactful. Certainly was uh, uh, talked about. Uh, Robert Thompson uh, at Syracuse University is with us. We're talking about this list. Uh, MTV, Robert, it wasn't that I was surprised to see it in there i was kind of surprised to see it so high considering videos kind of had their day it was very popular but very much confined to a period of, to a moment in time so to speak yeah well um, well i'd have put that high on the list too i mean not not necessarily any specific moment although they made a big deal of that uh, uh launch they turned it into an actual launch there was a countdown and then they showed the I launch never, of an yeah. apollo rocket uh and then a countdown of they were mixing space shuttles and uh, other things but they made it look like it was news coverage of an actual launch um but mtv not necessarily that buggles song which we only know thanks to the fact that it was the first uh video on uh mtv but i think that was the uh um service the cable channel that really lit the fuse that started the cable explosion down here i mean you had all the cable had come out and it was only a few more channels a lot of it was just reruns of stuff People had a hard time uh, being convinced to pay for something that they already got for free, uh, television. And with MTV, all of a sudden, if you had anybody in your house under the age of about 20, they absolutely, positively had to have MTV because it was what everybody was talking about. Well, by the way, we were calling that generation the MTV generation. I remember it. Years. I'm part of it. I don't know of any other of TV channel that's ever had a generation <laughs> named after it. Um, yeah. So in that sense, it really helped boost uh, uh, television in a big way. But you're right. Within a few years, MTV was doing The Real World, which also should have been on this list. That launches reality TV uh, in a big right. way. Um, and they were doing other things besides uh, videos. But uh, that that was important for getting cable going back in the early days. What uh, ESPN starts in 79, CNN in 80, and MTV in 81, and that really gave it a push. Of course, who shot JR? Uh, essentially taught network executives that you can do serialized soap opera type of storytelling in prime time, not just in daytime. And that was the most important lesson that entertainment TV ever learned. Uh, all of the great TV we've got on now, of course, is all serialized. Uh, with a couple of exceptions like Peyton Place in the 60s, we didn't have serialized television in the United States until Dallas became a big hit. Right. It was all episodic, right? It was all episodic. It was all right. Then. They reset yeah. at the end of every uh, episode. It was as though nothing uh, that had happened in previous episodes had ever happened. Yeah. Well, Robert, I, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight. I know the Emmys are on, so I, I thanks so much for uh, for sitting down and walking through this list with me a little bit. I oh, so we it. can't get to go through the the Canadian list, which I'll, I'll well, put Schitt's Creek well, on the top. I, I, but I, here, here uh, I'll, I'll play I'll play you one because this should be number one. Leo, let's let's hit hit number one. This was my number one. I chose it though. Y.A. has it on that wing. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for it and fell. Here's another shot. Right by the door. Henderson has scored to Canada. Henderson right in front of the net. And the fans of the team are going wild. So that was just not long after the moon landing. Well, 1972 to be exact. Yeah, I... But that's sort of the moment in Canadian 
That, that's the one that people talk about. Paul, I guess I, I cannot top that with uh, Degrassi, SCTV, and Anna the Green Gables. So, yeah, I'll oh, give you that one. That. Well, you know what? Funny you should mention that because uh, we do have some SCTV, Leo. Good day. Good day. Good day. Good day. How's it going? I'm Bob McKenzie. It's my brother, Doug. How's it going? Hey, we got two topics today, back bacon and long underwear. <laughs> so I included that. So that, you got two of my top three, by the way. That already. still holds up. Have you got any Fraggle Rock, Rock back there? I don't have any. I should have had some Fraggle Rock. You see, now you're challenging me. I should have thought of Fraggle Rock. I it's didn't in the think... hall, although a lot of that stuff you can't play today. It, that, that, could... um, a lot of that plays a little offensive these days. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because looking at them, and I think what's interesting about being Canadian is that we recognize so much of the American list. But we also, if we were to do a Canadian list, it would be quite different. It would, and especially, I think, uh, what, what, what your number one is, those, those kinds of things. I mean, yeah, 9-11, that was a big deal globally. But there are uh, lots of things that, uh, you know, that there are big uh, differences in. Though, of course, there are also a lot of uh, some of the major uh, uh, nightline, which, of course, started with the uh, Iran hostage thing. Uh, right. Ted Koppel, of course, was Canadian as uh, Morley Safer, some of the best coverage of Peter the Jennings. Vietnam War uh, for CBS. Yeah. So. There is a lot of overlap in the list, but there are some unique ones, too. Robert, thank you so much for your time tonight. That was lots of fun. Thanks. I used to have this thing back in Montreal. I went to Jamaica with my mom in 1985, very briefly, and I had this thing where after that, every year, when it got really dreary and cold in about January, February, I used to listen to a lot of reggae, because it, it really does make you feel like you're sitting on a... You're making, it feels like you're sitting somewhere warm, right? So I thought, okay, it's been a really tough weekend this weekend. It's been so cold in so many places. So let's light it up a bit. Let's bring some sunshine in. Uh, so there you go. That's the Satellites. You must have heard of the Satellites. They're perhaps Canada's most noted reggae gay band that's a new track actually there's called never given up on love um i just should mention very briefly you've been texting the most impactful moments in canadian tv history ever since i mentioned the american ones so uh start this hour is 22 minutes with Stephen Harper. Um, the Royal Wedding, from a Canadian perspective, that, I mean, Charles and Diana's Royal Wedding, way back when. Ben Johnson racing against Carl Lewis. Yeah, I remember that. I remember the elation, the elation and, the, and the disappointment of that one. Uh, much Music should be on the list, says Trucker Kevin. I was saying that Much Music was, in fact, I thought... Uh, Right off the, but not at the beginning, but as time went on, quite a bit more innovative than MTV, and we were agreeing on that as well. But the satellite, so formed back in 1980 by Fergus Hamilton uh, and the late great JoJo Bennett, who passed away just a few years ago. You may have read that. Uh, they released six albums, won two Junos, uh, became the only Canadian band ever to be invited to perform at Jamaica's legendary Reggae Sunsplash Festival. If you want to look that up on YouTube, please do. It's always a blast. Um, Hamilton's also been involved in some side projects over the year, including a jazz ensemble known as the Jazz Lovers, a recent reggae and ska album with uh, Lord Sassafras, who's also a, a very cool guy. Um, so again, this just reminded me of when I used to put on those reggae albums it was at the time, 45s, believe it or not, at the time, to try to stay warm through a cold Montreal winter. So I thought it would be great to share um, to share some reggae with you tonight. Fergus Hamilton joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, how are you doing, Ben? Nice to uh, nice to hear your reminiscences there. Uh, yeah, we used to visit down in J. That's nice. 
Yeah, the record huts. I mean, I was there just for the tail end of that where you could go to the record hut and the scooter would show up with the new releases and then play them. And the people would stand there and either like – it was essentially like that thing on uh, on uh, on American Bandstand where they would like it or dislike it. I mean, within yeah, like yeah, four no, they're, bars, they're, they were like, it's always, out. Always yeah. very demonstrative in their likes and dislikes, that's for sure, the Jamaican yeah. audiences. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, well, you know, when I was growing up, I lived in – you know, between the years of eight and 12 in a little town called Oakville, and they had a record store, and the records used to come from Toronto on Friday night, and on Saturday mornings we'd go and cram into those little booths, and Mrs. Lofquist would play the records, and uh, yeah, good time. Good to hear your new song, by the way. It's, uh, it sounds good. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's the first um, real release we've done in <clears throat> like 20 years, so uh, there you go. Yeah. What's a bit, I mean, take me back to the beginning because I mean, I remember you really well from just that period in the mid eighties. Of course I was in Montreal. I remember seeing the videos and so on. And it was, it was great to see a reggae band, a Canadian reggae band um, do so well, but tell me about starting the band off with Jojo, of course, and, and he's passed too. So I imagine this record is a bit of a dedication to him too. Well, we, we certainly had to have the horns on there because uh, Jojo was all about the horns and, and, uh, you know, he and I bonded together originally because I'm a sax player originally, I guess. And um, he and I bonded because we played in a little horn section uh, backing up some Jamaican artists. That's where I first met him. And um, there's a fantastic uh, drummer named Joe Isaacs who's still living here in Toronto or in Ajax or somewhere like that. And uh, he wanted to start a band to play ska music. So this is the uh, mid-70s, I guess, or late 70s, I guess. And uh, ska has been out of fashion for years, but kind of those Jamaican styles, they never really go away. So uh, anyway, he put the band together to play some ska music and some old classics. And we had a great horn section. And Joe and I started a little school with some of the other guys, the other horn players. And... um, the two of them dropped out pretty quick, but uh, Joe and I kept the school going. And then the band kind of came out of, evolved out of the school because we used to go to like Jamaican restaurants or small little places and the students would play their, their numbers that they had learned. So it was like a, a recital, a traveling rec- musical recital. And uh, I, I learned a lot from Joe myself just in, just about music and about living and about, you know, enjoying the uh, enjoying the playing and the making of music, definitely. Because you'd come off, because uh, I was listening to some of your earlier stuff um, from the sort of the more folk rock days. Um, and, and you came out of that. I mean, that was a very vibrant scene, of course, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, into the mid-70s in Toronto. It was fantastic. What can I say? And I'm still... I'm happy to say quite good friends with quite a few people. We've lost a few along the way, uh, you know, that generation, but there's still quite a few people around and still making music, many of them. You know, Keith Mackay from Kensington Market is still playing and singing beautifully. And yeah, there's quite a few, quite a few of them. Yeah, that was quite a transit because I was—I think it was "Open Your Eyes" was the song I was listening to. It's quite a transition from the folk to what then becomes um, then becomes basically the satellites. You know. I'm sort of in this, uh, it's been my curse and my blessing, and that I hardly see any difference between any of it. You know, I just enjoy all different kinds of music, and um, really, I mean that quite sincerely. I I enjoy all different kinds of music. I mean, Gordon Lightfoot and Ian and Sylvia and Tim Harden and those people, they're a great influence on me, the Love and Spoonful, all that. 
kind of stuff. So I naturally, and the Beatles, of course, and I naturally gravitated towards playing that kind of music. But um, so, yeah, I, I like variety. You know, people, when I drive home, I always try to take a different route every time. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm musically yeah. driving through my neighborhoods, I try to take a different route every time. Right. I, I, I suppose as a musician, it makes perfect sense because you've been doing other stuff recently as well. There's, uh, we'll play a bit of it too. There's uh, the Jazz Lover Society, so you've been doing some of that. I suppose uh, for you, I mean, for the listener, maybe it sounds quite different, but for you, it's, it's music, right? It's, it's what you like. Well, and, well, uh, yeah. here's, the, here's the thing. My father was a, a poet and a writer and uh, worked for the CBC for many, many years as a music reviewer. And he loved, I think he could never decide who was the greater genius, whether it was Fats Waller or Mozart. So I was kind of raised listening to all of that music. And I was also listened to the AM radio. So I absorbed all of that music. And of course, in those days, the AM radio, and here we are in AM 640 in Toronto anyway, uh, shout out. Um, in those days, of course, they played a, such an incredible variety of songs were on the hit parade, you know, on the top 10 had such a variety of things. So uh, I've always appreciated the variety of, that's available to us in this musical universe. It's fantastic, you know. Yeah. And I personally, when I first got into the reggae thing was so the early 70s. And the reason I loved it so much was because to me it had the elements. It had beautiful harmony singing, which I loved from, you know, the 50s and the Beatles and all those great Beach Boys, all those great harmony. It had harmony singing. It had great horn sections, horn playing. It had great bass playing. And I was very much a fan of Paul McCartney and his, you know, all bass players, you know, the Motown bass players. When they first started, you could first hear the bass on the records in the 60s and we all went, whoa, those parts are great, you know. So, and so reggae to me was like a perfect combination of that. And plus, it, it had great songs, many of which I'd never heard before because they hadn't penetrated up here. But And one yeah. thing about working with Jojo and with Neville, who was one of the other great components of the original band, is that we both grew up in British-oriented kind of societies, one in Jamaica and one here. We had so much more in common culturally than we had different if you see what i'm saying like there were so many threads that were similar yeah that's a great thing a commonwealth so to speak yeah i mean for me it was the heart of they come soundtrack i think my parents must have played that right through uh, when i was young and that was the one that kind of lifted sort of introduced me to the sound and then you're right but you know in the early 80s if you were young and you just listened to the charts you would hear all kinds of stuff right there was musical youth That's there right. was eddie grant That's i mean there was there was reggae on the radio here roxanne sort of a reggae song if you want to go that far um yeah we, we uh we managed to get some reggae on the radio in canada which was uh and i sat and worked the phones for many of that many, many of those yeah. early things and, and it was kind of nice you know when we did uh, this a song easier said than done and um mm-hmm. We did it at, in the studio where they did that scene in The Harder They Come, and the studio looked exactly the same. The organ was sitting in the same spot. And, oh, wow. You know, yeah, it was, it was a nice, nice moment. Yeah, what was it like? I mean, because obviously there's been a lot made about about the reggae scene in Britain and the two tone scene and so on, and how it was quite mixed and, and multicultural, and it was from you know involved um, musicians from all across the Caribbean as well as white musicians from Britain and so on. And I was talking to Julie Black on the show a while back, and we were talking about sort of the reggae sound from Toronto had its own flavor, right? That it was it wasn't quite what they were doing in Britain. It certainly wasn't exactly what they were doing in Jamaica. 
And it was somewhat more sophisticated and advanced than because they weren't doing much in America at that point. Yeah, there, there was, you know, there was a tremendous scene in Toronto with, uh, it, and I describe it as a scene in that people were regularly in contact and people played with different people and, you know, there was sort of interplay between bands and there was there was a common a common repertoire like there were a lot of songs that that many people did in a sense and um and uh, i kind of miss that a bit i don't see it so much it's a little more disparate now i mean uh i think and and i'm going to digress slightly here but i honestly think that toronto and canada generally are producing so many good musicians and there's such a great scene going on uh, reggae but but all these younger musicians are blending all of the musics together. So, you know, you might hear all different kinds of music inside one song. I mean, there's a wonderful live scene going on here. Great, great musicians and really interesting stuff happening. Anyway, digress slightly. Yeah, no, but that must, I mean, as, as just as, as, as you were describing, taking a different road home every night, it must be, it must warm your heart to see that it continues. It, it, it really does. It really does. And um, there's, you know, there's, some people my age might say, oh, there's no good clubs anymore, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, uh, people find a way, and there are some amazing spots coming back in Toronto. It's tough, as we all know, just over the whole, you know, Western world with rents and all that kind of stuff. It's not easy, definitely, but there are things happening. And honestly, since the end of the pandemic, people are really happy to have music, live music in front of them. I've really yeah. noticed that. There's a, real, there's a real appreciation. There really is, you know. Fergus Hamilton is here to help us do that. He's, of course, uh, the longtime lead singer, co-founder of a band called The Satellites. He's been doing lots of other things, too. You heard a little bit of, uh, of it outside coming into the break, uh, Jazz Lover Society. And That's Freedom, something he did with uh, Lord Sassafras, who's kind of a big deal uh, in Jamaica. Uh, you've been doing a lot of interesting stuff over the past little bit, uh, uh, Fergus. It's been It's interesting to listen to. Well, I appreciate the fact that you've dug into things and gone back to Open Your Eyes, which is from like 1970. That's from when I went to Wales in 1970, that song. Right, right. And uh, so, yeah, I appreciate that. But, you, you know, uh, I don't know if you know the expression bucket list at all, but uh, yes, I've kind of, uh, the Jazz Lovers Society, you know, I played, I've learned a ton of those songs, those old songs, because I admire those songwriters so much and done a bit of performing of them, you know, casually around. And I thought, well, you know what? I have to record an album of those songs. Plus, I wrote a few songs in that style, and I thought, might as well do them now. And the thing with Sassafras was great. He's a, more of a DJ guy, but he's written a whole pile of songs that have got bridges and choruses in them. And so I was singing them for him, and uh, we collaborated on that one that you played a little piece of and uh, I, yeah and the neighborhoods album i decided i would do a walk through all of the musical neighborhoods that i've been in in my life so that's the thing behind that album and i'm glad yeah. i got that stuff done i had the good sense to put the neighborhoods album out just before the pandemic so it had nowhere to go at all but uh still have some vinyl if anybody wants some <laughs> Which is I, love, I mean, vinyls. We just did, we just interviewed a reggae a record pressing plant exec about just how much business has boomed in the past little while. Uh, so tell me what's coming up for the satellites. Are you gonna are you gonna head out uh, with with uh, with with the new with the new formation? Yeah, you know, I've um, as I say, and I know Joe would 
would uh, love us doing this because, as he used to say, one monkey don't stop no show. And uh, so we've got the horn section. Got a, I mean, I've got a beautiful horn section playing with us. So it's eight or nine pieces, sometimes ten pieces. And there's four of the original people left. Um, the bass player, Bruce, and I are on every gig. And, and Neville, the guitar player, and Dave, a keyboard player, one of the original keyboard players, uh, they're on some of the gigs. So, And we're playing some places so far around in Ontario, but um, there's a chance we're going to be going out uh, west, I hear, to uh, Edmonton and so on. We're going to try to expand a little bit. It's, I took that nine-piece band across the country three times in the 80s, uh, which <laughs> economically was, I don't even know how we did it, but I think it would, it would be harder to do now. But we've had great response playing live, and my son is playing with me, which is really oh, a great. pleasure. He's, he's playing some saxophone in the... Uh, in the horn section. So yeah, we, we, it, it, the band sounds great. And as I say, we've got a lot of people who remember us and come out and dance and have a good time. Yeah. I mean, tell me a bit about, about that, about the touring, because, you know, I mean, it was, there was very much, I mean, I always sort of pictured reggae as being very much, there was a, a bit of a reggae scene in Montreal, quite small. I guess Ernie Smith, there were a few other guys. There was, of course, in Toronto, you had a, quite a few, Messenger and you guys and a bunch of other bands. But what's it like now? Is there still a scene out there? And I guess, I guess the band grew far beyond that because of the success and much music and the Junos and so on. Uh, you know, uh, we were really we did go across the country and we played in all kinds of places and there were always Jamaicans everywhere we went, Northern Alberta didn't matter. There were some Jamaicans there. And then there was a general appreciation of reggae in those days. Um, you know, it wasn't on the radio particularly, but people really liked it. And, you know, there were some, uh, we had some great gigs traveling, you know, Banff and we used to play. We had some great gigs in Victoria, as a matter of fact. Uh, right. So uh, I remember there was this club in Victoria that was kind of upstairs. There was kind of loft in it, but I can't remember what the name of that club was. That's of the 80s. So that's, you know, a long time ago. But goes back I, a while. I, yeah. I, I don't think, you know, I'm I'm of a certain generation. So, Maybe I'm not seeing it in the same way. I know the younger musicians are mixing still. There's still that kind of stuff going on as far as the scene goes. And there's a number of, uh, I hesitate to call them younger reggae bands, but there's a band called The Human Rights that is traveling a lot and they're going down into the States and stuff. And there's some other, you know, really good bands in Toronto and around. But I, I wouldn't say it's a scene in the same kind of way that it was back then. Right. What was it like to play in Jamaica? I, I, I thought that would have been that would have been quite, not to mention the studio uh, in the heart of they come. Well, the uh, the recording experience in Jamaica was fantastic every time because it was so efficient and so professional and so great, and those musicians are so good. And playing live, we did play a few live a few times down there, and um, uh, the reception was always fantastic because I found. Jamaican, I've always found Jamaican people very warm and accepting generally anyway, if they sense that you're there to to bring the music forward as opposed as opposed to living off the music, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. the, it, it, we played at the uh, 100th anniversary of the Alpha Boys School, which is where Jojo learned to play the horn, and uh, I was struck by many things on that weekend. It was a fantastic weekend. 
I was struck by the the camaraderie and the, the fellowship of the musicians that were there, and because they were all at this alpha boy school, and um, the older boys would mentor the younger ones. So the the boy and the you know the thirteen year olds would mentor the twelve year olds, who would mentor the eleven year olds, and there was this wonderful camaraderie amongst all those musicians and there were famous musicians from all over the world reggae musicians that came in the four days of music at, in Kingston and um, generally speaking the conversations when they would see each other would start with how's the family right there was just there was just an amazing wonderful spirit and um, Jojo got a, a school uniform made by a tailor down there so it was these khaki shorts and these knee socks and this shirt he got an alpha school uniform made and the reaction in the care of theater when he came strutting out playing his horn in that uniform the whole place just fell apart laughing and then <laughs> I, I came on and sang a gregory isaac song and the place was in an uproar because this was 1986 i look pretty english i don't really look whatever right. and the coming out and singing a Gregory Isaac song was, it, it was a, a stunning moment. We, we had a great time down there. It was great. Fergus, uh, I'll, leave it, it, leave it, I'll leave it at that. We're just running out of time, unfortunately. Fergus, th- thank you so much I'm for your so time tonight. I really I'm appreciate it. Not at all, not at all, not at all. It is slowly getting warmer out there, although oddly enough, the warmest spot in Canada today, or at least in the last hour or so, was way up north, Pangnirtung Airport in Nunavut, way up in the Arctic, because that big cold front has moved down. And so the Arctic's actually warmer. It was 6.3 degrees there earlier today. Uh, The coldest spot is in the Northwest Territories, uh, down near minus 38. Uh, But a little bit warmer across the prairies today, minus 24 at Edmonton, minus 10 in Calgary. It's still cold in the prairies, still cold in in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba. Um, But needless to say, it was a pretty hairy weekend for Alberta's electricity operator. Um, They say today that more wind and solar power helped to ease the strain on the system because of that big, very deep freeze. The Alberta Electric Systems operator had to issue alerts over the weekend to urge people to conserve power. Uh, here's operator spokesperson Leif Solid, who says a lack of wind over the weekend was partly to blame. We've gone for a period over the last few days where we had almost no wind, and we were very uh, short on supply, and that you know created additional challenges and additional stress on the grid. And now we're starting to see more wind, which which certainly does help us meet demand here across Alberta. Right. He also thanked Albertans for helping to conserve power. Their efforts really helped free up uh, more than 200 megawatts in grid space over the weekend. If we hadn't been able to conserve that electricity, we would have been forced to implement rotating outages across the province. So Albertans stepped up, they helped us out, and they cut their power use. Right. So, uh, I mean, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want rolling blackouts and then when it's minus 40 out, obviously. Uh, now, of course, electricity generation these days is a bit of a political football, right? So clearly there are the usual suspects who are ready to go play football the moment this happens. So Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith, Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe were posting on social media over the weekend as this was all unfolding about uh, how that, uh, you know, essentially how renewables cannot be relied on when temperatures drop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Liberal 
government disagreed, the federal government disagreed with all of this. Randy Bosno is uh, one of the sole voices of the Liberal Party in Alberta, and he called it a petty, untrue, and partisan attack. Um, BC sent a lot of uh, uh, power, well, it was cold here too, but BC sent quite a bit of energy towards, uh, or electricity to Alberta. Didn't include the sermon, by the way, but sent it anyway. Um, needless to say, it has opened up a discussion about, about this. Uh, here's Alberta's Utilities Minister, Nathan Newdorf. And we're seeing that that demand go up. So being able to manage that and work collaboratively for uh, emergency situations is becoming much more critical. Joining me now is Andrew Leach. He's an energy and environmental economist, a professor in the Department of Economics and the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. He's been talking about this a lot in much demand. Andrew, thank you. Thanks for having me. I mean, it was it was interesting to see the system. I mean, you can tell why the, the temperatures were were ungodly, but but there was a lot of strain and a lot of chat. It brought up a, it, clearly a hot topic uh, in Alberta right now. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, I mean, my students uh, on social media, obviously, as you quoted the government and uh, everybody having received it on their phones as a emergency notice, I think really amped up the concern and the engagement of everybody. So what was going on precisely with uh, with supply and demand over the weekend where you are? Well, there are a few things that were happening at the same time, uh, and most of them are summarized well in, in your opening clips. So you had obviously very cold temperatures. BC and Alberta both set record electricity demand uh, numbers over the, over the past few days. Uh, Alberta's on Thursday. Then we moved into a very low wind event, so we weren't able to rely after Thursday on on much power from our our substantial wind energy resources. We had two natural gas facilities that that were down to major ones, and then that eventually became three for a little bit, or or most of three. And then we also had some interesting dynamics on, on the trade front, so I think BC was uh, seeing a lot of a lot of pull as well from Washington, where there were some natural gas outages uh, that were pulling on their ability to export to Alberta, and so you know certainly on the weekend there was maybe less um, power available from our trading partners than there had been uh, in uh, than there would be on a normal day, and even than there was uh, through other parts of of the crisis. Right. So Alberta was pulling, and I know from BC, from Saskatchewan, from Montana, right? It was uh, kind of all hands on deck. Uh, so listeners understand, because it's funny how electricity is one of those, it, it changes so much depending what province you live in, right? Uh, you, you you might live happily in BC and have no idea how the power grid works in Alberta. How does it work in Alberta? Because it's deregulated, right? Yeah. So, the, you know, from a technical perspective, and I'm the last person who should probably be talking about that, but the, <laughs> the grid itself is not particularly different. What differs no. is that uh, that Alberta has a competitive wholesale electricity market. And so individual companies can own power generating facilities, be they solar or wind facilities. They could be batteries or they could be gas or coal generating facilities. And they supply into a grid and every hour of Every hour of the year, there is a market price that's established based on on supply and demand. And then BC, of course, plays into that market as a as an importer or as an exporter, depending on on the hour and the prices. And, but BC, of course, has uh, one player in the BC market, and and that's BC Hydro and its related entities. And so it's a little bit of a different ball game from the point of view of. You know what? What is the clearing price on a day-to-day basis, et cetera? BC sees that indirectly as the the price at which it can export or import from its neighboring uh, consumers. But you wouldn't have that established in the same way on an hour-by-hour basis in BC. 
Right. I, I, I think it may have been you who posted this to social media over the weekend, but the prices that people pay for their electricity in Alberta seem high would be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, certainly for the last better part of two years, they have been really high. Prior to that, they were really low. So that is one attribute of a competitive market is that you're not paying an amortized value of all of the capital costs. You're paying what the energy is worth today. So when the market is really well supplied, prices drop. When the market is undersupplied, prices rise. And in the last couple of years in particular, as I said, we've had a little bit more market concentration, not as much competition as we would like, and a little bit of an undersupplied market, which has driven prices through the roof. Tell me a bit about the politics that came into this, because I have to say, I mean, I wasn't shocked that, that Scott Moe would play politics with this or that even Danielle Smith would or Brian Jean or any of them. But the, the speed with which they played politics with me, I thought, wait a second, they're in the middle of what could be loosely defined as a bit of a crisis right now, right? The electricity grid's a bit wobbly. Yeah. It's very cold. And next thing you know, they're sort of, let's talk about, you know, the greening of the greening of energy in Alberta. You thought, that's a really weird reflex to have in the middle of a crisis. Well, I think everything right now is so tense on the energy file that uh, that's the natural reflex that everybody has is to say, you know, things are tough. Why are you pushing harder on us to make even bigger changes that could uh, that could push us further, could have had us in a worse state of affairs on the weekend? So I think that's what you're seeing from from Premier Smith. I think Premier Mo also, you know, is is certainly in that fight mode with the federal government and wants to build up that political sense that the federal government is pushing too hard on, in particular, the prairie provinces to clean up their electricity supplies and and to rely more on renewables. So this presented a really uh, interesting opportunity. You know, I certainly would have rather seen, in particular, Premier Smith uh, send the message in the time to Albertans about conservation and not worry too much about, about the politics at that moment. How fair was that uh, Was that critique then? Because, I mean, we know that the Alberta government sort of put a pause on renewables for now. Uh, clearly, I mean, anyone who, I, I who do not, do not know a ton about this stuff, everyone understands that, that when you use renewables, it's part of what we'd call an energy mm-hmm. mix. You can't, you're not waiting for the sun to go down or the wind to stop blowing and then all of a sudden the whole city, the whole province goes dark, right? I mean, but you got the sense that was sort of how it was being played out. It was odd to read. Yeah, I think I think that's sort of been the conversation all the way along in Alberta that somehow there is a, a group of individuals who believe that solar is unaffected by sunsets and wind is unaffected by weather, and and you know that that we're sitting back and saying, um, and you know I get painted with this sometimes uh, of sitting back and saying, sure you could just you know take that coal capacity offline, replace it with some solar, and everything will be fine, and and there's nobody with any connection to electricity policy that, that of course, knows that everyone's aware of sunsets. But it's still, when you look at it, and and I'll admit it was striking to me, right, when you're in the middle of an electricity supply crisis, you're getting an emergency um, warning on your phone, and we, I mean, it's after sunset, so there's zero supply from solar, but there was also only seven megawatts of supply from wind. Um, And we tend to think of wind as being a little bit more reliable particularly in in the Alberta winters. And uh, in this case, you know, with the deep cold, that's one period where wind does not perform as well. So it was still pretty striking to see that, even though it wasn't unexpected, the grid operator had forecasted, et cetera, but it still catches you. And you you sort of take a deep breath and say, well, seven out of 4,485 is not not doing much for you at that point in time. 
Andrew Leach is with us from the University of Alberta this half hour. We're talking about a tough weekend for uh, the power grid in Alberta and elsewhere, by the way. There was record demand in BC as well, but of course, there's more supply here. Uh, but it was a tough weekend all around just because of how cold it was. Uh, Andrew, I think one of the things here, and you mentioned it earlier, if you look forward, is that, of course, the population's growing, demand is growing. There is this push by the federal government to green the grid, so to speak, uh, and to green cars and everything else. So electricity demand continues to rise and meeting that demand is tough but alberta is putting new stuff online aren't they for sure and alberta has a new well is almost ready to go within commissioning phase new gas-fired power plant the largest of the combined cycle plants in the province is weeks away so if you know if that would have been online just that alone you would have heard about the record demand but you wouldn't have heard about the crisis that that we ended up in it would have been you know a story more of resilience than than of crisis just from that one facility so we are building some new stuff. We have a, another new plant, uh, a retrofit of an old coal plant. We're, of course, almost through a coal phase out in Alberta. So by the end of this year, Alberta should have gone from a very coal-dependent electricity system to having virtually no coal, if any at all, uh, used in the production of electricity. So it's been a really rapid transition in Alberta already and, you know, of course, more to come. Right. And and not all of it. I mean, people tend to, to immediately attribute that to the brief period of time in which the NDP were in power in, in Alberta, but it's not, right? It, it's been sort of a collective effort over the years by different governments in Ottawa and in Edmonton. Collective effort by governments, but also big thing is, is market force, right? You see mm-hmm. in the U.S. where you don't have, you know, anyone named Trudeau or Notley in power and you're still seeing a very rapid move away from coal for electricity, mostly driven by cheap natural gas. And, you know, BC certainly plays a, a huge role in that with uh, with a big natural gas resource supplying into Western Canada. But, uh, you know, that's really what's driven it, is you've gone from a world where gas was double digits and maybe going to go higher to a world where we've come to optimize around relatively cheap local gas or very cheap local gas, and, and that made it economically viable to phase out coal and then the other stuff sort of comes in and and gives it a push. Where do you see the impact then of this weekend and this broader conversation about what happens next for the for the electricity grid? I know this fight will continue, no doubt. Uh, but where do you see this fitting into the broader conversation around this? Because I think it's a reminder that renewables are not always as reliable. I, I mean, I think we knew this already, but that there needs to be backup and there needs to be a, a sophisticated system in place to make sure that renewables are achieve maximal effect. Yeah, well, I think it, it does bring that, but I, I think in response to both that and, and your previous question, right, remember that how fast technology is moving here. So we have, you know, go back 15 years to when, whether it was BC or Ontario, we're doing procurement programs for wind or for solar, and costs for solar have come down probably, you know, 80 or 90% from those levels. Costs for wind are down substantially. And so these resources have become the cheapest source of energy that we have available to us the, the issue that you know confounds that is that energy may not be generated exactly when we want it so i think that's the key uh challenge that we face going forward is how do you turn an environment of relatively plentiful energy into one that is firm that is energy and capacity when you want it and so i think there's a lot of potential for collaboration between alberta and bc so um Alberta could be an exporter of power in times of surplus wind and surplus solar energy, and it would be an importer of power in some periods when 
uh, we really need the the extra supply and and maybe an exporter of power in other periods. So I, I hope we'll see more conversation about inner ties. We're going to see more conversations about batteries and long-term storage. We're probably going to see more of what we saw today, the conversation with nuclear power here in Alberta uh, mm-hmm. and in Saskatchewan. So I think it's sort of an all-hands-on-deck approach. And I think it's it really is, as, as you put it, it's a, it's a question of an energy mix, but also a question of a very rapidly changing energy technology and energy use sector. Yeah, well, and, and just watching how it unfolded this weekend was uh, was fascinating, even from here in BC. A- Andrew, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're talking electricity this hour. We started by talking about just what a tough weekend it had been for the power grid in Alberta and in elsewhere. Um, record demand in BC as well, just because of the cold weather. And then uh, above. Just to add to it today, an announcement that was interesting because I'd already planned to do this interview. And then all of a sudden I woke up this morning and there was this headline um, that Alberta is considering or is looking, is, is starting down the path to building their first ever nuclear reactor. Now, the current UCP government's been quite uh, in favor of exploring this uh, simply because it would be a way of adding to the energy mix there. Um, One Alberta power producer said today that it aims to become the first to build a nuclear power reactor in that province by 2035. Capital Power Corporation, they're called, announced today that they had formed a new partnership with Ontario Power Generation, or OPG, the country's biggest operator of nuclear reactors. Of course, Ontario has been a place where uh, nuclear has been an important part of the mix for quite a while now. Over the next two years, those companies will study the viability of building a small modular reactor or small modular reactors um, in Alberta, SMR as they're called. If built, they could be jointly operated and owned. The provinces, again, the provinces, UCP government has been um, showing some interest in these SMRs in the past. As my next guest explains in a great McLean's article that I recommend called Bring Back Nuclear Power. Um, He describes the small modular reactors this way. The science remains the same as a large reactor. An atom-splitting process known as nuclear fission uh, generates a huge amount of heat, which is then converted into steam that drives turbines that electrify our cities. But while traditional reactors can generate between 600 and 1,000 megawatts of electrical energy, SMRs generate less than 300. Now, that's still enough po- uh, power to community to still enough to power communities of up to 10,000 people for a decade. So it's big. Uh, the modular part means they can be made in factories and transported by truck or train or barge and assembled wherever they are needed. The cores of these many SMR reactors, he says, aren't much bigger than the average office desk. So you can see they've really changed the way these things operate. I mean, to me, growing up in the 80s, obviously, to me, nuclear reactors were like, you know, the China Syndrome and Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. And I mean, that, I know these are all the disaster stories, but that's sort of where it, where it lives in the popular imagination when, you're, when you grow up in that era. Um, the federal government's also investing in SMRs. In 2020, they released their SMR Action Plan, which outlined recommendations for nuclear waste disposal regulation and partnerships with Indigenous communities. We should more, know more about that uh, later this year as well. Uh, and because the main thing here is that in countries like Canada, you need a mix of power sources. You need you need a fossil fuel-free backbone of energy uh, that can be your go-to when other sources aren't available, like solar panels on a cloudy day. So you need something to back that up, and nuclear power can help 
be that backbone, right? Uh, it's obviously reduces a lot, produces a lot less emissions than fossil fuels. It comes with some caveats, obviously, as I was mentioning, for all its benefits, it's still a divisive topic. Um, cost and safety, still things people talk about. Cost and safety, safety around the plants themselves, safety around the disposal of the nuclear waste. Uh, to walk us through all of this is someone who knows this topic really well, the author of that article in McLean's, who I was just quoting, David Novog, is the director of the Institute for Energy Studies and a professor of engineering physics at McMaster University in Hamilton. David, thank you. You're very welcome. Happy to provide whatever I can. Yeah, interesting announcement from Alberta today. I know they've been talking about uh, how nuclear might complement the existing energy mix in the province, but this is a relatively big step. And teaming up with OPG, of course, Ontario Power Generation, who have a lot of expertise in this in this field. Yeah, I mean, o OPG brings the the experience to, to Alberta to be able to help out with that feasibility assessment. And, you know, I think in those two years, they're going to look at the status of their energy grid uh, issues, you know, stemming from this weekend and from other other parts of their uh, their energy production and also what the future would hold in terms of, you know, reliable energy decarbonization and, and all the things that, that you hear about in the media today. When, if, if we take a step back and just look at nuclear itself, for those who may be tuned out after hearing about Fukushima, Germany closing all their most of their nuclear or all of their nuclear, uh, think back to Chernobyl. Sort of, you know, the, the, when we grew up, right, the sort of the Three Mile Island era. Um, so much, so much has changed since then. Uh, what, what exactly is going on in the field of nuclear, and what's an SMR? I know that's a big, that's okay, a big term. So yeah, first question is, I think that the, the thing that's happened in nuclear that, that that's really refocused attention on it is, of course, climate change, that, that um, you know, the impacts on climate are so disastrous on a global scale and local scale, you know, when we look at forest fires and all those things that are happening around Canada recently, that the impact of those things means we have to reevaluate all the things we know about energy and about climate and, and make, make sure that we make decisions that are, um, you know, in our best interest in the long term. So nuclear in Canada has provided energy in Ontario and New Brunswick and, and, and up until recently in Quebec that has really meant that in those jurisdictions, our grids are very low carbon. We're, we're some of the most low carbon regions in the whole world. And we've operated those reactors safely and, and, and continue to improve safety all the time. And I guess once, once the world and Canada started refocusing on low carbon energy, nuclear really comes up as a, as a very attractive option. Right. And the, and the SMRs you were mentioning as well, yeah. which is sort of an interesting development. I mean, I always think of the can-dos and, you know, forgive my ignorance about how it all works, but I always think of the can-do reactors as sort of as, as part and parcel of that, but not quite. Yeah. I mean, can-do reactors are large reactors. They've worked well here in Ontario. And, you know, currently both uh, Bruce Power and OPG are investing billions of dollars to refurbish them to extend their life for another 30 years. So can-do has been a huge success story here in Canada. Um, but small modular reactors, SMRs, are a new sort of thought in nuclear that maybe, you know, if we built them smaller and, you know, it's it's a smaller project, it's easier to manage, it's easier to deliver, um, and, and it's easier to transport it to different places. So by making them smaller, you sort of get the benefits of that small size. And it may, might mean you're able to deploy them in places that traditionally haven't had an option at nuclear. So... When we look at Saskatchewan, for example, Saskatchewan's considering and already selected a, you know, a kind of medium-sized small modular reactor 
um, as its technology that it's looking at because it's the right size for Saskatchewan. You know, it, it doesn't have you know, millions and millions of people um, that it needs to service, but but it has a good size population, and and I, I think SMRs will allow Saskatchewan to decarbonize. Um, and, and still maintain, you know, all of the new electric vehicles and, you know, new industry that requires more electricity, it'll still allow for growth. Because that's the bottom line here. We need a lot more electricity and there are only so many ways to create it, right? Yeah. So COP28 is a great example. I mean, coming out of that in December uh, in, 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 in UAE, um, the 22 leading nuclear countries in the world signed an agreement to triple the amount of nuclear by 2050. So if we imagine that we have you know, three or four nuclear sites in Canada, we need to expand that by quite a bit. Um, it's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of investment, a lot of people. You know, I'm in a university and our, our business is people. And one of the things we're really trying to think about is, is how can we get the next generation to be trained and ready to go um, for such a large build-out, for a build-out of a size and capacity we haven't had to do before. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because you, you brought up a, a good point. We always associate nuclear with sort of population density, right? It was sort of to scale. And the idea that these small modular reactors can be deployed. Um, I mean, I've, I've been just you, this was you writing about it as well, just how diverse the deployment could be of these particular of this particular technology. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great it's SMRs is, is, a, is, you know, it's just one one acronym, but it really spans a lot of different technologies from things that could be small enough to power a remote mine, or it could power a remote community that doesn't have an electrical grid to speak of, all the way up to something that, you know, could power Southern Saskatchewan um, or or good parts of Ontario. So, you know, it's really a, a new thought in nuclear. For a long time, we were trying to build reactors bigger and larger and larger capacities. And I think over time, what we realized is that one size doesn't fit all, that there's a, a large part of Canada that that doesn't have the population density or industry density to support a, a large can-do unit. So, well, so yeah. making sure we have options is, is a big part of, of, of you know, giving people, uh, empowering people to make a decision. Realistically, how far away are we? Because I understand, I, think it, I don't think there's been one officially approved in Canada. I don't know an SMR that is. Uh, how far away are we from this technology being being sort of, I mean, I know Alberta, today's announcement was actually Alberta looking into this for 2035 uh, to, to complete construction, doing some feasibility over the next few years. But realistically, how far away do you think we are from seeing uh, small modular reactors actually in use in this country? So I think the farthest ahead would probably be uh, Ontario Power Generation and its mm -hmm. Darlington site. Uh, they submitted last year a license to construct. Um, so the, 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 in order to get the permits, the regulations require you to, to get licenses to do different parts of nuclear. And, and one of the first ones is a license to just start the construction process. Um, and that, that's given by the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. So that license application went in last year. And we should get uh, an indication of, of, you know, that this year or, or early next year. And that would really give OPG the go ahead to start constructing those facilities. There would right. be a license at a later date, a license to start operation. But the first license to construct would be, I think, a big milestone in Canada to 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 get the sort of SMR technologies moving. Right. And also a way of kind of evening. I mean, electricity generation can be a bit of an un uneven playing field in this country. I mean, I grew up in Quebec, so uh, and I'm now in B.C., so I'm aware of both of those things. I mean, this could be an answer uh, if all goes according to plan. This could be a good answer for places such as Saskatchewan and Alberta, where, you know, generating power, as they rightly point out, could be challenging. 
Yeah, and and you know it's it's uh, it those those have really you know difficult climates in the winter and are still pretty hot in the summer. Um, and so I think those those places need stable and reliable power. You know, when the wind isn't blowing or or you know when it's cloudy and 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 cold, um, I think those provinces in particular really are looking at nuclear as a, as a stable energy source, something that they can rely on day in and day out, irrespective of weather, and and also meet some of their longer term uh, you know decarbonization efforts. David Novog is director of the Institute for Energy Studies and a professor of engineering physics at McMaster University. We're talking about nuclear power. Uh, an Alberta um, power producer today, Capital Power Corp, announced alongside OPG, Ontario Power Generation, that it, it's exploring uh, building that province's first nuclear reactor by 2035, Alberta's that is. Uh, David, I mean, there's always, you know, the fears about nuclear waste and about cost overruns and so on. Uh, you mentioned a bit about how the smaller ones may uh, alleviate some of those problems with the big cost overruns, uh, which aren't exclusive to nuclear projects, by the way. Um, but but just a bit about the concerns that still exist and, and stuff like, what do you do with the waste? Because that those those conversations don't go away. No, no. And in fact, they're important. I, th- I think if you're if you're a supporter of nuclear energy, uh, you, you need to have the answers on those two subjects that you just mentioned. And the first one is really on costs. And, and I think in the whole Western Hemisphere, uh, there's probably lots of examples from different sectors on, on projects that, that have gone... Uh, that have gone wrong from a cost perspective and have really uh, uh, dissuaded from the public from wanting to to even look at these large kind of projects. And I think in nuclear, I guess we have learned a lot of lessons through the years that, from the construction of Darlington and overseas construction that 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 we're not immune to those same kind of project difficulties. I think recently, you know, if we look at the large refurbishment projects at Darlington at Bruce, these are some of the largest energy infrastructure projects in North America today. They're going exceptionally well on time and on budget. Um, I think there's a these days a much better uh, understanding of how these large projects run, what you have to do to control them and, and make sure that they're they're running properly and, and also making sure that you've done adequate preparation ahead of time. This has been really the key, I think, globally on projects that have started to turn the corner and become right is you have to make sure your plan, you know, everything's planned to the littlest detail ahead of time. Uh, because when you when you have uncertainty in the project, you know, things things can easily go off the rail. And um, how about so that was the question on, on on financing? I I think right now the evidence from from the big projects at Bruce and Darlington are that these projects can be executed properly and and, and with good financial certainty. But um, I, I, I think that that those lessons have to be translated into, into new builds. Right. On the waste side, there's there's yeah. lots of, there's lots of news on the waste side that we can <laughs> talk about. Um, nuclear waste management organization is is mandated from the federal government to to be the the company that holds the holds the the, the nuclear waste in the end that designs the facility that can that can accommodate spent nuclear fuel that will manage it. Uh, we'll make sure that communities are accepting of it and, and 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 participate in the process. So, nuclear waste management organization, we call it NWMO. Um, this year, they should be selecting their long-term site, uh, a site that they will invest in heavily and 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 bring a lot of economic growth to. And that process, you know, it's interesting when I talk to my students. The NWMO is starting on a fifty, you know, seventy-year process with a community. We won't be putting nuclear spent nuclear fuel there for a long time. 
there'll be lots of discussion. There'll be lots of borehole drilling and testing and, 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 and technical development of that site um, just to get it ready uh, 20 or 30 years from now to start re receiving spent nuclear fuel. And then that fuel will be coming from the reactors for the next 100 years almost. Um, so, so I think that process is pretty new. It's pretty, you know, in, in Canada, we've never seen anything like it where a federal agency is really committed to community for a hundred years or more of, of development and, and they should be selecting that site later this year. So that'll be a, another, you know, really interesting development and we'll finally provide a definitive answer sort of on, on the spent fuel in Canada. Yeah, David. I think we grew up about the same time. So I grew up in the era of you know Silkwood and and the China Syndrome and Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and and the list goes on. So I mean, rightly or wrongly, because you know nuclear power has been at use for a very long time without without foul in many a place. But it does occupy a particular spot in the in the popular imagination, or at least it has over the years. Do you feel that's changing? Is that is that something that we will see change uh, in our lifetimes to where we actually see sort of small, efficient, uh, safe, uh, and and perceived to be so by the public? Well, yeah, I think I think that's got to be a mission. I, I mean, we, any of these technologies only exist because the, you know, the public allows them to, to operate. So I, I think that that will be a big part. I think right now the sentiments related to nuclear energy are, are some of the highest they've ever been, uh, as, at least since I started my career decades ago. Um, and we really see that. And, and what really gives me um, you know, hope for the future is when you look at the positivity around nuclear, it's always highest in the surrounding communities where we have reactors. Um, and, and what that means is that, you know, hosting a reactor really has a positive influence on the community. Some of the largest acceptances in Canada are, you know, in the Bruce region and around the, the OPG reactors. So what it means is that that the problems we have with people who, who are, are with jurisdictions where nuclear is sort of still viewed skeptically is, is because there hasn't been an opportunity for the people in those regions to learn, to learn more, to have their neighbors work in it and, and you know, tell them about it over dinner or at a barbecue. And so that level of communication, I think, really does, uh, does improve society's comfort level. So, I'm, I'm, you know, it's sort of a bit of a, um, uh, a chicken and egg thing that the, as we tend to develop reactor technologies, those communities sort of form a basis for for you know public acceptance and then that sort of grows to the surrounding regions and and further and further so i view this acceptability around our existing sites as a good uh you know uh, uh, flag related to the overall acceptance in society as, as we're moving forward with tripling the nuclear capacity yeah and i guess alberta will be the next ones to have this conversation uh, david thank you so much you're very welcome i'm happy if you have any other questions i'd be happy to come back on <laughs> CNN projects that Donald Trump will win the Iowa caucuses. CNN can make this projection based on his overwhelming lead in our entrance poll of Iowa caucus goers and some initial votes that are coming in. The former president pulling off a huge early victory in his bid to return to the White House. Trump easily defeating his top opponents, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, who are now in a high-stakes fight for second place. Let's go to Aaron Burnett at the panel. Aaron, uh, not a surprise, but still, this is the earliest I can remember ever calling such a thing. 
Yeah, we, that, that's from a few hours back, by the way. Trump, uh, of course, officially won tonight in Iowa. Uh, it reminded me of one of those nights. I mean, I grew up in a riding in Montreal where the liberal candidate would usually win at like 8.30. The polls would close at 8.30, and they would declare that the candidate had won at like 8.30 in four seconds because they always won by a landslide. And that's really what happened tonight. There was no doubt that, uh, that Donald Trump was going to win in Iowa. There were some other questions about just how big the margin of victory would be. The answer to that question is very large indeed. And who would finish in second? Who would finish second? Would would anyone, would a contender emerge tonight? Would there be any separation between essentially the, the other two? It's like watching one of those Olympic races where someone's way, way, way ahead. And then there's sort of a pack of people chasing. You think they're never going to catch up, but maybe one of them will make a break for it. Uh, so that was the other big question, tonight, really between Ron DeSantis, as was mentioned uh, by Jake Tapper there, between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Uh, there's also been a dropout tonight. Uh, someone has decided to leave the race. Um, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is gone. Uh, Chris Larimer is in Iowa. He's a professor in the, uh, in the political science department at the University of Northern Iowa. He's going to walk us through what happened tonight. Chris, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So, uh, I mean, I think the big questions tonight were going to be how much would this margin of victory be and would anyone emerge in second place? What were the, I mean, on the margin of victory, uh, it's enormous. It's a, he, he, he just swept, he crushed the field tonight, Donald Trump. He did. And, and, you know, the Iowa caucuses are, have always been about the expectations game. And the, the question for Donald Trump tonight was given where he was in the polls, given that he was the national front runner, could he meet expectations? Could he get to that 50% mark? Could he break the record for caucus support? And I think you have to say that he did in terms of, you know, exceeding expectations, winning by 30 percentage points. He did beat the previous mark for a competitive Republican caucus in terms of the percent support he received tonight. So his campaign definitely has some momentum going forward. And then, on you know, the flip side of it is, you know, that you can still exceed expectations and get a boost even if you don't win. But I think there was a lot of expectation on Nikki Haley that she might be able to come in second. And then given where she stands in the polls in New Hampshire, the next state, that she might be able to make this a more competitive nomination process over the next several weeks. What we're seeing now is that, you know, it looks like she finished third by about two percentage points. I think that that potentially suggests that maybe she did, she failed to meet expectations. And that puts a lot more pressure on her campaign going into New Hampshire, whereas for Ron DeSantis, you know, he did end up getting second by about two percentage points. I think a lot of people were war- wondered whether or not if he finished third tonight, could he even keep going with his campaign? This probably at least keeps his campaign going into New Hampshire, but more so for him, he's probably more that campaign's probably more focused on South Carolina. So I think, you know, the Iowa caucuses, as I said, are about the expectations game. I think you have those storylines coming out of it. The other part of it is the Iowa caucuses have always been about winnowing the field and, and, and we saw that through the process and then we saw it tonight with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy um, ultimately dropping out of the race. Yeah, it was interesting to see because it feels like a, a sort of Trump confirmed his front runner status, which I think was uh, clear going in, but truly, uh, as you mentioned, lived up to expectations. And it feels like now that both DeSantis and Haley are kind of on their campaigns are kind of on life support because one of them had to emerge tonight from the pack. I know that DeSantis spent a lot more money in Iowa than Nikki Haley did, but still, if, mm-hmm. if she was going to show momentum, uh, a second-place finish with, with, with a bit of a surprise might have been necessary for her tonight. I think, I think yeah, that's, I think that's certainly what her campaign was hoping for, is that they could get a second-place finish and then potentially close the gap in New Hampshire because she's still behind by about 12, you know, on average about 12, 15 percentage points in New Hampshire. So now, you know, you, you wonder what that does for that support in New Hampshire, because what we saw in the last poll in Iowa 
uh, is that the support for Haley was not as firm as it was for DeSantis and Trump over the last several weeks. And so now you wonder going forward into New Hampshire, will we see the same thing for DeSantis? You know, he's polling. He was before Chris Christie dropped out. He was polling in fourth in New Hampshire. So I think his campaign, given where their focus is, given that they have a stronger appeal to evangelical voters, they're probably looking ahead to South Carolina. But again, that puts a lot of pressure on that campaign to 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 do well there and to make this competitive through Super Tuesday. I think there's still a question out there. How competitive is this nomination process going to be into early March, given where the two how far back the two candidates finished tonight? Yeah. Chris, walk me a bit through what happened in Iowa today, because clearly, I mean, everyone in Iowa is paying attention to the same thing that everyone else is. So you have the, you know, the the 91 uh, indictments uh, against uh, the former president and the legacy of Mm -hmm. January 6th and so on. I mean, there's a lot out there. Uh, How was it received and and what was the support for Trump based on in Iowa tonight? Was it based on who can beat Joe Biden or was it based on he's our guy? I, I think it's probably the latter. I think a lot of it, you know, what we saw throughout the caucus cycle going back to polling in last summer was that his support was right at that 45 to 50 percent mark. And it stayed there throughout the caucus cycle, throughout the indictments, throughout everything that's come out over the last several months. His support really did not move. And in fact, he throughout the caucus cycle, his supporters were the most dedicated and the most committed to him compared to the support for DeSantis and Haley. Even those favorability numbers, we saw a little bit more movement with DeSantis and Haley than we saw with Trump. So I think uh, I think it's what, what you said. It's a lot of these caucus goers, he was their guy, and they really were not going to move from him. And their, their perceptions of him as a candidate ha- have really been settled for the last several years, and that's what we've seen through the caucus cycle. Yeah, I'd forgotten he had lost to Ted, to Ted Cruz in 2016. I mean, I, obviously, right. it's, it's, I'm sure it's been talked about a lot, but I'd forgotten this was actually a bit of a this was a big deal for him too, just personally because he this that was a bit still left a bit of a bad taste in his mouth from 2016. It did, and you know the, the interesting thing about 2016 was that yeah, he finished second to Ted, Ted Cruz, but he received the second most votes at the time without really doing the things that most people think you have to do in Iowa to win in terms of having a strong organizational presence, being in the state early and often. It was a little bit different this cycle, but if you compare the number of public events he had this cycle compared to Haley and DeSantis, it still is very, very small compared to those other candidates. And so I think for a lot of, you know, myself and others in Iowa who watch this, you know, we're still trying to figure out, did did he completely reshape the rewrite the rule book or is he just such a unique candidate that the rules really don't apply because there was always this assumption that you have to have a strong organization in Iowa. You have to be here often. You have to do as many meetings as you can with small people and really develop those personal relationships. And that's not really what his campaign was about. And yet tonight you see him win, you know, record support. Yeah. I, I mean, I gather it was part of it's just, I mean, the recognition, right? I mean, he, he is essentially, right. if you watch it from, from uh, on the other side of the border, it feels like he's essentially become the Republican Party, at least in name. I mean, that's, the, you know, the, the, you know, l'état c'est moi, as they say in French, the state is me. Uh, it feels like tonight that that was sort of what we were watching unfold, even though going in, it was clear that he was going to win. But it felt like you know, the amount of, I mean, 50, it's, it's still just 50 percent. I mean, not everyone voted for him, clearly, but it really feels like he's come to embody the party for a pretty significant chunk of, uh, of Republicans out there. Yeah, he, he certainly has a strong support among party activists. I guess the one thing I would just remind people of, you know, with the Iowa caucuses is these are really small turnout events. So, right. you know, it's looking like maybe 110,000 people, 120,000 Republicans showed up tonight. Well, there are 600 plus roughly 600,000 Republicans registered as Republican in the state of Iowa. 
So these are small turnout events. These are something that are dominated by the party activists. And at least among party activists, he does seem to have a lot of support. I think the question then becomes, when you get outside of a party activist-dominated like event, does he still have that support? Because then I think you start to hear more of those questions about electability and what does that look like then in, in the November presidential election. Yeah, and it was cold there. I mean, you're getting the same weather we're all getting, right? So it was it was, it was yeah. frigid there today, right? Very, very cold, yes. Um, yeah, I just I was driving home down, and I think it's uh, minus 13 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, uh, just air temperature, so chilly, yes. Chris Larimer is with us from chilly northern Iowa. This half hour, we're talking about the Iowa caucuses tonight. Donald Trump uh, sort of trounced, trounced the field tonight as he... Uh, took the first step towards becoming the presidential nominee uh, for the Republicans uh, with the election, of course, on November the 5th. Chris Larimer is with the Political Science Department at the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, Chris, I, I guess some other backstory, other side stories today, Vivek Ramaswamy gone supporting Donald Trump, not a big surprise, mm-hmm. but uh, he certainly made his mark in this race. I mean, people certainly talked about him a lot in a race that didn't seem to inspire much. I mean, of course, up on this side of the border, he talked about building a wall between your state and my country. I don't think that went over too well, but he's gone now. Yeah, he is. And, and like I said, you know, that's kind of part of the caucus process where we see candidates drop out on caucus night or the day after. But um, it'll be interesting, you know, how committed his supporters are. As you said, they, they obviously align very closely in terms of their views with, with the Trump campaign, and you expect them to, to go to the Trump campaign. But you, I think one of the things that's hard to, to figure out here in Iowa is, you know, where do those uh, – caucus supporters come from? Are these experienced caucus goers? Are they first-time caucus goers? And then how does that translate into other states? And so, you know, you'd expect uh, Trump's campaign to benefit in terms of his supporters coming over, but it's hard to know if he was engaging new voters or more experienced voters. Right. Uh, now, if you if you sort of translate this then, because often, I think you're absolutely right, oftentimes people from outside of Iowa, or I'm sure that's true as much in the United States as it is here in Canada, people will look at the outcome and think, oh, okay, well, this is it. Uh, you know, Trump's going to steamroll his way to the nomination here. But there are other mm-hmm. things at play within the state itself, too, in terms of, uh, I was, I think CNN were talking about this, I'm not sure how accurate it was, but they were saying that a lot of people were asked sort of about, about, indictments and convictions and whether that would disqualify a candidate and that maybe we shouldn't read too much into the kind of support that Donald Trump got in Iowa tonight into how that might translate on November the 5th. And you brought that up already a bit earlier as well. Yeah, I think, and I'm sorry, I, I just parked this, but I got back and there's a train going by, of course, right now. <laughs> not so at all, not at all. Well, it's, it's, back on, but, um, live radio is live radio, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I do, I, I think... That's the question is, you know, what does this electability argument look like for Donald Trump? Because his supporters in Iowa, at least among likely caucus scores, the polling showed that they really did not view his indictments as a problem. They really viewed him as someone who is the best able to match up against uh, Joe Biden. But again, once you expand the electorate beyond a small turnout event like a caucus, I think then those questions become more significant about electability, about the weight of indictments, about you know, what what the ballot will look like, what the atmospherics of the election will look like. Because when you talk about party activists, right, those are the, the most hardcore supporters of, of a particular party. And in the United States, we know that, you know, partisanship or what people will call hyper-partisanship really drives political behavior, that really firm commitment to a party no matter what. And then once you get outside that, you start to get into voters who maybe lean one way or voters who maybe don't always vote in midterm elections in the United States, but do vote in the presidential elections. I think then then you start to look at those bigger questions.
Yeah, yeah. That, I guess that, that I was going to say that train going by. It was the Trump train rolling to uh, rolling to New Hampshire at this point. They spent uh, yeah, bad, bad, terrible, terrible. They spent a lot of money. I mean, that brought came up today too. Obviously, the Democrats are not having a competitive contest in in uh, in mm-hmm. Iowa, um, and I guess we'll know the results of that later in the month. Um, but there was a hundred million dollars apparently spent by the candidates there. I mean, it starts to add up. I suppose in some ways it's beneficial uh, to Trump to just sort of be the front runner here and then steamroll. I mean, I can't see how long someone like Ron, I mean, Ron DeSantis's campaign has just been a disaster. And I guess Nikki Haley has had some people thinking maybe, but it feels like right now, like this is almost a done deal on night one. And I know that's, you know, lots can happen. Lots can happen. But it feels like after tonight, it's hard to see anybody challenging donald trump for this nomination i i i think it's yeah, i think it's going to be difficult um again i think you know a lot of people thought well maybe this would come down to nikki haley because of where she stood in the polls after iowa in, in particular new hampshire and then it goes to her home state of south carolina but mm-hmm. if she was struggling tonight in terms of that third place finish you know i think it makes it difficult for her obviously it makes it difficult for the desantis campaign and then you know everything we've seen nationally is that trump's standing among Republican voters, among likely Republican voters nationwide, is that, it, you know, he has pretty firm support. And it really hasn't moved over the last several last few years, really, um, where you haven't seen a lot of movement. Um, I think what's interesting going forward, again, is going to be when you, when you get into states with primaries, you know, once you expand the electorate, as I said, how does his support look? But at this point, it's hard to see where he stops, who stops him. Um, if you're really down to DeSantis and Haley as his two main rivals, and they had difficulty stopping him here in Iowa, it's hard to know where, where that break would be, where, where they're going to stop him. Yeah, I mean, it's early days yet. In fact, it's, it's day one at mm. this point, but, uh, but here we are. Chris, a, a safe drive home. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, trains, cold weather and all. <laughs> yeah, of course. You're welcome. Great. That was nice to be with you. Here's a stat I thought we should all pay some attention to, at least, uh, only mainly because I covered this company when I was in China many years ago. And in the third quarter, or the last quarter, rather, of 2023, BYD, or Build Your Dreams, as it stands for, the Chinese company, sold more electric vehicles than Tesla. So more electric vehicles than any other company for the very first time uh, in the last three months of 2023. A record of 526,000 battery-only vehicles sold in the last quarter. So it was the first time that they ever beat Tesla in that category. Tesla still still sold more EVs for the year 2023, 1.8 million as a whole. Now, a lot of this is going on in China itself. BYD are, are doing, in fact, EVs, they were about 8 million EVs sold in China in 2023. That's about double the 4.5 million, not quite, but nearly double the 4.5 million sold in the rest of the world. But one of the things I found really interesting here is that with all this push towards EVs that we're seeing in Canada, forget the cold weather for now, but all the EVs that we're seeing, uh, the push for EVs, especially here, but in other countries as well, are the Chinese going to be the ones who are going to reap the benefits of all of this? Because it looks like they've, they've invested a ton of money in EVs. They're getting a big jump on in a lot of countries. Now, they really dominate sort of a lower-end market when it comes to EVs compared to, say, Tesla. Um, But, you know, they have a big leg up in this one, I think. So with all this move towards EVs, are we giving them, so are we going to be sort of handing this money over to Chinese companies, right? Are they building, are they following in the paths of Japan and South Korea, who over time have managed to find a way to catch up and then surpass when it comes to vehicles? Uh, Someone who knows a lot about this is a Southwestern-born 
Ontario-born automotive engineer who founded industry consultancy Monroe & Associates. His name is Sandy Monroe. Um, he worked for Ford. He's worked for a bunch of people. And he knows a lot about EVs. He joins me now. Sandy, thank you so much. Hey, no problem. I'm glad to be here. Tell me a yeah. bit about, I mean, we all the talk these days is, is about EVs, right? I mean, we've been talking about it for quite a while. There was some big news at the end of the year. BYD in China is doing very well. Uh, we just saw Hertz yesterday announced they're going to sell off their fleet of, of, of EVs. Yeah. Uh, where, where, where are we at in 2024 as, we, as, as the year begins? Well, that's like three questions in one. So, <laughs> so, so let me let me start through that's that. The, one. That's that's the cardinal it's sin a, of any of any of any reporter. I guess where are we at in twenty twenty four? Well, in twenty twenty four, um, okay. So Hertz has sold off a lot of cars because two reasons. One, uh, most people don't know how to use a Tesla or any other electric vehicle. They don't know that hey, uh, you really <laughs> you really don't need. Um, a lot of keys and stuff like that. And they don't really understand the percentage of the battery that's left and, and on and on. And they're not told much about it. Now I I've been driving uh, electric vehicles for quite a while and I, I feel very comfortable with it, but for folks that pump gas, it's a, it's a new experience. And quite frankly, Hertz just never gave you the experience that you were looking for the training that you were needing in order to make this all happen. Yeah. They also found out something else. They make a tremendous amount of money on gas, right? You bring it back. Oh, I got a half empty tank. Oh, no problem. We'll charge you 50 bucks a gallon for that. <laughs> and, he, you know, that goes straight to the bottom line. Right. And with electric, uh, that doesn't happen as much, right? It's, um, for instance, my uh, my Jeep, uh, I used to have a Jeep Wrangler, a, a Rubicon, and I paid about 250 bucks a month to drive back and forth to work. If I drive the Rivian or the or the Tesla, it's about eleven bucks. <laughs> it's eleven dollars a month. Uh, people don't grasp the concept of oh, your tires don't wear out. Are you kidding me? Oh, you mean your your brakes don't wear out? Are you kidding me? What do you mean you don't have an oil change? All these things that people don't know about electric vehicles, uh, and they're being carefully hidden because really and truly, you were mentioning earlier. You know, there's some pretty aggressive things that that uh, the car companies are going to have to address shortly. And um, and I said something like, wow, wow, wow. They knew this was coming. They knew it was coming, but they didn't want it on their watch. Right. Because that really affects your bonus. I, I came from the auto industry. I know a lot about how you make money at uh, at those types of companies. And quite frankly, moving from one system like EVs to from the uh, ice world, um, that's a big kick in the head. So, uh, so they they chose to try and ignore it. And as you know, or as I've said, like dozens dozens of times, the Chinese were putting their A team on it, as was Tesla, but uh, everybody else was putting the B team on it. And in case of Volkswagen, that would be the C team. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. It, uh, it's kind of like a, they're getting they're reaping what they've sown, and, and and as you mentioned, this is all speeding up uh, pretty fast for companies that didn't that didn't foresee what was or, or may have known what was coming but didn't plan properly for it. Do you really think we're heading into sort of a complete upheaval of the automotive industry? It feels like it to some extent. It's been so similar for so long yeah. now, at least in my lifetime. Um, well, it feels like we're heading to a, to, to a pretty big change changing of the guard. Well, at the end of the day, I. Uh, I, I shouldn't mention that I, I my job at Ford Motor Company was engine engineer, <clears throat> and I had a lot to do with the design of the Vulcan V6 along with its manufacturer. 
And uh, so I kind of understand that business. And what happens when you're an engine engineer is you, or a powertrain engineer, because I also worked on transmissions, you, you understand that there are thousands of parts moving inside of an engine and transmission. And when you start looking at an electric motor and a three-speed gearbox or three-gear gearbox, you know, it's only going around in a circle. And not very much can go wrong. It doesn't wear out. I mean, really and truly, it, it becomes obvious that this is a much more effective, efficient way of going. So at the end of the day, I was an easy convert. But for a lot of other people, you know, well, we've always done it this way, and they're stuck there, and it's hard to move. But I will tell you that, yes, we are moving very, very quickly. And uh, I think all the automotive companies that are traditionally ICE vehicles, they're stuck in a, in a pattern, and it's very, very difficult for them to claw their way out. Because mostly we, what we don't really have a lot of are Elon Musk's, those kind of leaders who really and truly are leaders. They're not in it for the glory or they get a, a free car every so often. They're there because they want to change the planet. And in fact, there's really, really at the end of the day, I can only think of Jim Farley. And he's the only at guy Ford, that right? I can point at and say from Ford, yeah, mm-hmm. and point at and say, well, there's a guy that's trying to change the planet. And I'm sure that <laughs> knowing Ford as I do, I'm sure he's got plenty of headwinds to, um, you know, try and keep him either static or going backwards. Mm. Sandy Monroe is with us of Monroe & Associates in Detroit. He's a Canadian, uh, but has been uh, in the States for a long time. He's, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, he probably forgets more about the automotive industry in a morning than most of us know in a lifetime. Uh, We were talking about EVs and and just what's been happening uh, over the course of 23 into 24, the rise of BYD in China. Of course, they sold the most EVs worldwide uh, in the last quarter of 2023. So, Sandy, is is this something that we're going to be seeing? We, clearly, as you put it, China put their A-team on this. They knew that EVs might be the way to leapfrog a lot of other countries who had a lot more experience and a lot bigger market share, whether it was the Japans or the Koreas or the Germanys or the Americas, uh, in automotive manufacturing, that this new technology might allow them to jump the line, so to speak. Uh, are they doing a good enough job at it? Oh, yeah. they're They're beating everybody soundly. There's no question in my mind that uh, that BYD will become the biggest car company on the planet. Um, I think uh, Tesla will be also quite big, but the biggest car company prior to BYD was uh, Volkswagen. Volkswagen has taken over, sorry, has been dropped into either second or third place in uh, in China, which is the biggest car m- market on the planet. But I believe that BYD will hold on to that top rating for at least for EVs and then eclipse everything else. Because quite frankly, the the Chinese buyer is a slightly different animal than the US or Canadian buyer. These people live with pollution. I mean, I'm looking up something here for nuclear power and where that fits into um, uh, the scheme of things in, an, in the very near future. And when it comes to uh, burning coal, nobody, there is no second place. I mean, I think they're like a thousand or ten thousand times more pollutant than uh, than what we see out of North America. But so they're living in an environment where, you know, uh, diesel fumes and um, and gasoline fumes just add to the the misery. So they're they're very very uh, driven toward going to electric. And I just talked to somebody at the uh, Consumers Electric Show 
and they were in um, Shanghai. And he said, you can't believe it. There's no noise. Right. You, you go onto the streets and, and whatnot. The, every, everything's, everything's quiet. They yeah. said that they were totally blown away. Which if so you ever cross the street, if you ever cross the street in China, you might be a little concerned about that. Well, yeah, yeah. I like those under. I like those tunnels that go under the street. Yeah, I use those all across the, time. the street. I, I feel like one of those video games. Yeah. And, and one of the concerns, of course, is that with all these targets in place, Canada has some pretty ambitious targets. That if, if in fact, a Chinese, it's you know Chinese car makers that start to really move to the front of this, especially with the lower cost options for EVs. That in fact, with all the subsidies that are there and so on, that that it, that in fact, all these targets are really going to help. China's car market more than anybody else, or at least Chinese car yeah. makers more than anybody else. Is that a legitimate fear? Oh, it should be. I mean, at the end of the day, these guys make really good cars. Um, I spent from 2014 to 2019, most of my time uh, when I was traveling was to China. I spent about at least five months, somewhere between three to five months in China. And what was I doing? Well, I was training them on how to design vehicles uh, for battery and battery plants, actually, we did battery plants, electric motor plants, and then car, uh, you know, the entire car uh, designs taught them how to do the best they can to reduce weight to make the car slippery. So uh, coefficient of drag efficiencies as far as the electronics, edge computing and things like that. And then, uh, and then of course, the new technologies that had to do with um, reducing weight. So those are the four big things that are associated with um, making a highly effective and efficient electric vehicle. So how much was I doing with um, the local teams? None. What, what do you see happening then in 2024? Because clearly there is some pushback now from uh, the automotive industry and those who are, are, are have an integral part of it in this country, just because it feels like these targets are coming up fast and, uh, and it, does, it feels like we're, we're lagging a bit in terms of being able to protect Canadian jobs. You know how this all works in Southern Ontario and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, you know that, that this is going to be, it feels like 2024 might be that year where the rubber really hits the road, no pun intended. Oh, there's, there's no question about that. There's going to be a lot of sad faces. And, um, and there's going to be a lot of, um, well, we're going to teach those Chinese guys a lesson for, you know, going out and, and doing things inventively or, you know, taking care, trying to take care of the planet and whatnot. Yeah, there'll be a lot of that stuff. And I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of folks that are going to wind up in second place because their leadership or the lack thereof didn't do anything. I mean, at the end of the day, there's... I may not be living in Canada, but I sure hear a lot about uh, Mr. Trudeau. Anyhow, at the end of the day, what did he put in plan? You know, what was he what did he put in place to to try and make this stuff happen? He went over there and said, yeah, we're going to be just like California. Uh, really? Well, you know, you know, you do have to get from here to there. I mean, so uh, you know what? You Let's get back to the Chinese. This is their um, this is their this is the 14th or 15th year. Every five years, they have another plan, right? Five-year plan, yeah. The 15th, this is the 15th, I think it is, 14th five-year plan. And this is called the energy years, okay? We're in the middle of their energy years five-year plan. So what did they do? Well, they, they, put in, they put an infrastructure in so that they have the amount of electricity that they're going to need for these um, new electric vehicles. They dumped a tremendous amount of money into R&D on batteries and electric motor designs and factories to build these things. And what did we do? 
well, if you vote for me, I'll be a chicken in every pot, right? It's the <laughs> it's the only that's what they really you know, vote for me and and what? But anyway, yeah. at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of unhappy people, unhappy people. And I don't think the best marketers in the world are going to convince people that, hey, we should we should just go and pay, you know, these gigantic amounts of money for gasoline and uh, and we're going to keep the uh, Chinese out. It ain't going to happen. I mean, we need stuff from China. And if you go and uh, bop somebody on the top of the head and then say, hey, uh, by the way, can you help me push my uh, car out of the snow? Uh, uh, chances are good you won't get much support. And that's what's going to happen. And it'll boil right down to money. And um, and the Chinese will say, either you let us in or or else. And um, and that's and we're going to go, oh, yeah, sure. OK, well, we and that's what's going to you were there. You saw it with Japanese cars too. I mean, it was just they were more reliable yeah. at a certain point. So people and they were cheaper. Yeah. So people bought them. And people laughed at them at first, and they bought them. Korean cars were garbage. Then people, then they got better. Yeah. People, people bought them. I mean, it's just the way of the way right. of the, the way the cycle works, right? It it does. Uh, the we live in a consumer uh, economy, uh, not a communist uh, economy, not a not a willy nilly kind of economy. This is this is the the kind of economy that uh, that makes a uh, makes the uh, consumer king. That's why we get away, believe it or not, with cheaper prices than anywhere else in the world. And when the consumer is unhappy, and they will be, once we hit that 30% mark, everything everything comes really quick. It, it's going to be, you know, the Titanic sat there for a while before it shuddered and headed south. At the end of the day, the same thing happens with all markets. And I was alive when um, when... General Motors had 60% market share and nobody even knew how to spell Toyota. And that's a fact. And now what do they got? 12% on a good year? And what's Toyota got? A shitload more. That that kind of happens. The Japanese basically sell more cars than uh, than everybody. Toyota is now, I think, in number one, now that uh, Volkswagen has moved down. They, they're either, uh, I think they're number two, actually. But at the end of the day, Everybody who's hung their hat on ice is going to be in trouble. And the real trouble is going to come from China because they do have really well-built um, economy cars um, that you can pick up for everybody saying, well, Tesla's going to come up with a $25,000 car. They got cars right now that are fifteen dollars or $1,800 that um, I'd definitely 000. buy if yeah. they were over here. Sandy, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Yeah. 